Luke chapter 6 is our sermon text for this morning. It is on page 1601 if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. This is God's word given to his people. Please give your attention to its reading. It is our authority in faith and in life. Luke 6, beginning in verse 27. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, Do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do unto you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Amen. There is an infamous moment in church history that happened way back in the 4th century. Constantine, who would later become emperor of Rome, prayed to God in the midst of a battle. And as Eusebius, the historian, tells it, Constantine then sees a vision of a glorious shining cross right in front of him. And he then hears, in a mighty and thunderous voice, in this sign, conquer. In other words, in the sign of the cross, conquer. Constantine won the battle that day, that day that he supposedly received this vision, and the empire of Rome was forever changed. Soldiers went around with the sign of the cross of Jesus Christ, ironically, on their shields, bringing it into battle, fighting in their minds in the name of the Lord. But there were also good consequences to this as well. Christians were no longer persecuted in the Roman Empire, and Constantine even facilitated the gathering of synods and councils to discuss and decide important doctrinal matters in the church. Looking back through the annals of history, it's hard to know fully how to evaluate this. There are some good consequences, many bad consequences. It seems Constantine himself struggled with his Christian identity when he tried to balance it with his civic duties as the emperor. We read of how he delayed baptism until his deathbed, talk about risky, because he was worried that his responsibilities as emperor would interfere with his Christian ethical life. He thought he would not be able to walk uprightly as a true Christian as long as he was emperor of Rome. So he delayed his baptism to the very end of his life. 
I wonder if the same kind of mentality might be true for some of us. We struggle with how to put the pieces together between our life lived unto God and the daily responsibilities we carry out in the age of this world. Most of our jobs are clear evidences of God's common grace and the things that we all as human beings experience together, not just Christians. There are also some jobs that some Christians would say we ought not to do, especially when we consider the words of Jesus here today, these these challenging and shocking and piercing words. Some Christians have decided that it would be better to not have anything to do with the enforcing of justice in the world by punishment and coercion. Can a Christian be a faithful police officer or prison security guard? Or can a Christian even be an executioner on death row? Can a Christian judge hand out sentences for evildoers? How do we square all of that with what Jesus says here today in Luke? These are not easy questions, not by a long shot. In fact, these questions are so difficult that uh, I was struggling this week with exactly how to preach it, how to bring it to us this morning. I was reminded every day this week as I read and studied this passage that I'm just a man uh, who can err in what I say. So I thought it'd be fitting if we just go to God one more time this morning, ask him to humble us as we come before his word, and ask that by the power of his Holy Spirit, he would make the truth plain to us. Let's ask God in prayer. Father, then humble us before your word. May we always see your word as over us and not ourselves as peering down at your word. May we understand this morning how to apply Jesus' words. May it mold and shape us. May it smooth out our rough edges. And may we always cling to your word in all things, even when it is difficult. So what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, what we are not make us. For your son's sake. Amen. The central idea this morning for us is this. Jesus calls the citizens of his kingdom to a radical lifestyle of mercy. But in order to understand how to apply Jesus' words this morning, we need to grapple with the age in which we now live. What we have been seeing in Luke is that Jesus brings the kingdom of God to the present age. He makes it present to us, and it is a true reality. And yet, we have not experienced the consummation of the kingdom of God, the finalization. We look forward to that at the end of all things. And that is when God's kingdom uh, will stretch from sea to sea, and it will be fully realized in his eternal kingdom. So we have been made a part of God's kingdom, but we have not yet fully realized its consummation. For that reason, what I think we need to do when we come to this passage is we need to uh, ask for the wisdom of God to guide us in seeking ways to apply the words of Jesus in this text today. So then let us turn to this passage. By way of reminder, let us recount some of the things that have been happening in Luke. Jesus has come down off of the mountain. He has been speaking his, his law as the Lord of the new covenant to his people. He's bringing ultimate fulfillment, ultimate redemption. Jesus has said in the Beatitudes that the poor, the meek, the humble, the hungry, these are the ones who inherit the kingdom of God. 
In the Gospel of Matthew, it is called the kingdom of heaven. And Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven so that we are not tempted to confuse the kingdom of Jesus with any of the geopolitical nation states of this world. We have also seen how Jesus has widened the scope in all that he is doing. When he comes down off of the mountain, he is speaking not only to those from Judea and Jerusalem, but those from Tyre and Sidon. The scope of God's mercy, the scope of God's covenant has been widened out to Jew and to Gentile. No longer will God's people be a geopolitical nation state as they were in Old Testament Israel. God worked in that nation and he worked through them and he worked according to their interests. But all that was temporary. It was meant to bring us forward to this fuller realization of the kingdom of God that we see in Jesus Christ. So then Jesus is inaugurating. He is bringing to the present this manifestation of his eternal kingdom now. In the Old Testament, God dealt in promise. And now he will show us its fulfillment. Jesus speaks at the beginning of this passage about enemies and retaliation. Let's look at the first phrase today in verse 27. But I tell you who hear me, Notice that Jesus is once again focusing on his disciples. This is not general words for everyone on earth. He is looking into the eyes of those who will hear him and take what he is saying seriously. It is, uh, these words are for those who are made to be a part of the kingdom of God. And to this group, Jesus says something shocking, doesn't he? Look at what he says. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. In Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses a formula to introduce a lot of these sayings. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And in Matthew we read this. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. All throughout Matthew when Jesus uses this, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. He quotes the Old Testament, except he doesn't quote the Old Testament in this one instance. Nowhere do we find in the Old Testament the command, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And so that causes us to ask a question. If Jesus is always giving this fulfillment kind of interpretation of the Old Testament, is he dealing with true Old Testament teaching here in Matthew when he says, love your neighbor and hate your enemies? Some people have come to this passage and said, In this instance, Jesus is correcting an error of the Pharisees. The Pharisees had come up with this teaching of love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Is that what Jesus is doing when he calls us here, whether in Matthew or in Luke, to love your enemies? I would say this, while the explicit command to love your neighbor, hate your enemies, is not explicitly there in the Old Testament, There are all kinds of examples where God commands Israel to do things which were certainly not good for their enemies. And remember, in today's passage, Jesus says, do good to your enemies, to those who hate you. And there are all kinds of examples where God commands Israel to do something other than good to their enemies. In Deuteronomy 7, God commands Israel to devote all of the inhabitants of the land of Canaan to destruction. In Deuteronomy 23, God commands Israel to not seek the good of the Ammonites and the Moabites. 
And we see this mentality creep up all throughout the Psalms. In Psalm 68, it says this, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered. One of the clearest examples is as the psalmist cries out in Psalm 139, he says to God, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. It would seem then, in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus is not alluding to some misunderstanding of the Pharisees, but he is describing the posture that Israel was to have towards their enemies in the Old Testament, specifically their enemies within the promised land. This is not without difficulty, and of course we understand that within our fallen sinful nature, we understand the word hatred much differently, don't we? The word despise. Uh, Human beings will always do that in a way that's tainted with sin. And so we need to count that as we consider this text together. But as it related to the kingdom of Israel, the Israelites were to protect themselves from outsiders. They were called to do battle with their enemies. And within the land of Canaan, they were called to banish and destroy those who were not God's people. Thus, we come to Jesus' words and we see how he is uttering this kingdom ethic, which in some ways seems contradictory. But yet we'll see how it is really one of fulfillment. Those who follow Jesus, the Lord of this new covenant, are to have a posture of complete love and mercy towards their enemies. Jesus' words are meant to shock us, and they certainly do. Enemies at the time of Jesus would have been idolaters, pagans, those who want to destroy Israel and those who want to defame the name of Israel's God. But this is the radical ethic of Jesus' kingdom. Love those who at one time God's people were to hate. Love those who at one time God's people were to hate. Jesus then talks about retaliation. Look at verse 29. Jesus brings about a a, a fulfillment that perhaps no one would have expected. He says, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. In the Old Testament, these are the exact kinds of actions that would have demanded a, a response of justice, a necessary response of justice. I'll read for us in Leviticus chapter 24 says this, If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done it, it shall be done unto him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. This is called the law of retribution, the lex talionis. This law was not given for the maiming of bodies, but for the equal distribution of justice. So for instance, if uh, two men got into a fight and one man injured another man so that, um, so that the second man could not work, the one who injured him would have to compensate to make up for what he had taken away from the other man. So if I injure someone else in a battle, in a fight, and, and uh, that person no longer can work, I would need to compensate him to make up for his inability to work. That is how that law of retribution would normally have been applied. But we must notice that this is what Jesus says exactly not to do. 
If you are hurt by someone, let them hurt you again. If someone steals from you, turn around and give him more. What he is doing is he is, as we saw in the Beatitudes last week, remember what he is doing is he is focusing our attention on the fact that the kingdom of God is of greater value than anything in this world. He is applying that today. He's saying, in all that you do, in all of your life, you must understand that the most important thing is God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, and his kingdom, and everything else fades away when considering all of that. So when it gets really tricky for us as Christians, where many Christians have disagreed over this passage, is how to apply it. How can we begin to apply what Jesus is saying here? Jesus speaks with a sense of hyperbole, doesn't it? Doesn't he? It's not like within the context of being slapped on the cheek, there would almost ever be a situation in which uh, you could just turn the other cheek to have it be slapped again. This is not something that happens within the normal course of human existence. Nor would the thief who steals your cloak stick around for you to give him your tunic. You can imagine Someone steals your cloak and and is running away, and you say, hey, wait a minute, I need to give you something else. Uh, What thief would stop and come back? And yet Jesus does literally mean this. Your enemies are to be loved. You are not to take vengeance or retaliation. The strict justice that in many ways was prescribed in Old Testament Israel is not to be the code of regular conduct for the covenant people of God. So how do we make application of this point? Think of all the ways in which we see justice being enforced by punishment and coercion in this this world. These are all things that we should applaud, aren't they? Think about it. Evildoers are brought to justice so that they may not continue to harm the people around them. That's a good thing. Thieves are punished so that businesses can keep their doors open. That's a good thing, isn't it? All of these things are good. They're part of God's world. They're part of God's moral order. And as those who worship the one true God, we should celebrate these things. We should see them as good, as gifts that God has given to his world. So how do we apply the words of Jesus here today? It leaves us with a dilemma. How can we take this lesson from Jesus literally and apply them with any honesty? Perhaps a Christian who wishes to be a police officer, a judge, or a soldier should be like Constantine, should delay baptism until the end of your life, until your deathbed, fearful that they cannot live this life of contradiction. Perhaps we should be like some other Christian groups who have said, no, we need to completely withdraw from the world. We can't be in any way connected to these instruments or institutions of enforcing justice. We can't do that because Jesus calls us to this radical ethic. The way forward I would humbly suggest for us this morning, brothers and sisters, is that we must take this lesson of Jesus literally and yet apply it by understanding this time of tension in which Christians live. We take this idea of the kingdom of God, this uh, that Jesus has made us a part of the kingdom of God and yet it has not yet been consummated. We take that mentality and we use God's wisdom to apply Jesus' lesson here. The reason I say that 
That is how we ought to understand this passage because there's all kinds of evidence in the New Testament that we are to support and even participate in the things that enforce justice in the world. The Apostle Peter tells us to honor the emperor, to be subject to all of these governing institutions. The Apostle Paul very famously in in Romans chapter 13 reminds us that we are to be subject to governing authorities because God has placed them there so that they might bear the sword against those who do evil. They are these, these authorities that lessen the reign of evil in this world. This is how God maintains his order. Rulers and authorities are, as Paul says, this is fascinating, he says they are God's ministers for your good. This, of course, does not mean that every political leader will rule in accord with God's law, but they are called to. They are called to rule in accord with God's law. Thus, the New Testament is very explicit that as the people of God, we are not to hate justice and just punishment, but we are to welcome it. Furthermore, I think it is absolutely clear in the New Testament that Christians are not to be entirely passive, not to separate from these institutions of justice, but may and sometimes ought to participate in them. Just after this sermon, this is a fascinating thing that Luke does, just after this sermon in Luke chapter 7, Jesus interacts with a Roman soldier, a Roman centurion, And Jesus hears his story. He wants Jesus to come and and heal his servant. And Jesus says, never in all of Israel have I seen faith like in this Roman centurion. But he doesn't call him to leave his post as a soldier. He doesn't say that what he is doing is out of accord with his kingdom. Even Jesus himself says that this man could continue in his life. Following forward with Jesus' words then, we're ready to make the next step. As Christians, our lives are going to be in tension. And what I'm trying to tell us this morning is that we need to seek God's wisdom in in finding ways to apply the lesson of Jesus here today. This tension is highlighted for us in verses 31 through 34. Jesus says this in verse 31, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. There's a lot of, uh, of evidence that at this point in history... Uh, The golden rule was something that was respected by many different cultures, many different civilizations. There are Greek philosophers who speak of it, uh, other kinds of societies that talk about this law of equivalence. If people treat each other well and they understand that we all want to be treated well, then uh, civil society will proceed peacefully. So Jesus prescribes for us the golden rule. But he also says in verses 32 through 34 that the golden rule is not enough. He gives us three examples. He says, even sinners love the ones who love them. Even sinners treat well those who treat them well. And even sinners lend uh, uh, while expecting repayment. What Jesus is saying for us in verses 31 through 34 is that the golden rule is a good starting point. But in his kingdom, he ultimately prescribes more. We need not only a law of equivalence, but a super abundant mercy. That is what Jesus is saying that we need to do as his people. Jesus is telling us to start by being good citizens. And I think that's absolutely clear throughout the New Testament. A Christian is called to, when possible, be a good citizen of this world. Live by the golden rule. 
but find ways in which you can live by a mercy of superabundance, a greater kindness, a more radical love. And that is all rooted in the radical mercy, grace, and love that has been shown to us by our Father in heaven, our Father who has adopted us by his mercy and grace and love. Thus, Jesus closes this passage by telling us to love not just those who love us, but those who hate us. He reiterates it. Love your enemies. Treat those well who do not do the same for you. And lend without seeking anything in return. As members of Jesus' radical kingdom of love, we should seek God's wisdom. Wisdom is this fascinating category where we, uh, through the grace of God, perceive what is underlying all of God's world. We perceive this greater reality and we are to apply the commandments of God, that which he tells us to do, in this myriad of ways that can prop up in the lives of the Christian. This is why Jesus tells us we are to surpass the equivalence of the golden rule. Show a more radical mercy, a more radical love. And and honestly, it takes great care and great wisdom to even begin to think through how this can be applied in our lives. I've been thinking through this for, for many years and feel as though I'm just scratching the surface. But one of the ways in, in which we can begin to think about how this comes to fruition could be seen in our passage from last week. Jesus tells us that we will be blessed when we bear reproach for the name of Jesus Christ. When we suffer for the sake of Christ, we are to gladly and joyfully accept it. You notice that Jesus tells us what he means. He says, when you bear reproach specifically for the name of Jesus Christ, you are to gladly bear it. We see this in the book of Acts, don't we? The apostles counted it an honor and a privilege to be punished specifically for the name of Jesus Christ. Let me use one example that my seminary professor would use just to start us down the path of thinking about this passage and how we might apply it. Jesus is not trying to overturn civil order. He's not trying to to throw the order of this world completely on its head. And he is not telling Christians or the people of his kingdom to cease to have anything to do with the world around us. That's not what we're called to do. So then think on this example. Imagine in the middle of the night that your house is broken into and it's being burglarized. You wake up and you hear what's going on. You immediately are, are overcome with fear and worry. And, and you, you say to yourself, oh no, i got to call the police. Oh wait. Jesus says when someone steals from you, you must give them more. Is that what we should do? No. Of course not. We have the right and perhaps even the duty to report evildoers so that they might not bring harm to others. But then suppose that you bear reproach, that you are slapped, that you are insulted, that you are mistreated specifically for bearing the name of Jesus Christ. Doesn't it seem like Jesus' words are leading us in the direction in this passage this morning of joyfully accepting that kind of reproach should it ever come to that. 
What about Christian police officers, Christian judges, Christian soldiers? I believe that more than any other kind of person on earth, we should be the kinds of people who would understand the necessity and the goodness of justice being enforced in this world so that evil might be lessened. We need wisdom in seeking how to apply Jesus' words here. Justice in this world will always be imperfect. It will always be temporary. But it is a temporary good that has been given for the peaceable living of all those created as the image of God. It's for that reason that I believe Christians should, can and should, participate in these kinds of ways that enforce justice in the world. It doesn't mean that we we don't have tension, but we always live in tension. Living in this, the valley of the shadow of death, awaiting the consummation of all things, sharing in the kingdom of God and awaiting its consummation. No matter what our daily vocation is, police officer, soldier, accountant, farmer, stay-at-home mom, happy Mother's Day, We ought to seek God's wisdom to find ways in which we can show forth the radical love which Jesus prescribes, that which reaches even beyond the golden rule. There may be many situations in your life where you, through the wisdom of God, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, realize that God is calling you to show forth a radical grace, a radical mercy, an abundance. We do that in our relationships every day with our family, don't we? If we want to maintain a God-honoring, peaceful home, we all need to show each other radical grace, radical mercy, forgiveness, and forbearance. We see how Jesus brings all of this around to show us how it is so clearly and beautifully rooted in the gospel. It's rooted in the gospel. Verse 35, it says this, God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Isn't it good news that God is not just good to those who are good to Him? Isn't it good news that God did not just give to those who would pay Him back an equal amount? For He gave us that which we could never repay. He bestowed on us mercy that we never would have deserved. So He is calling us to imitate the mercy of God that has been shown to us. We are called to love our enemies because while we were the enemies of God, Christ came to live and to die for us. None of us deserved it. None of us deserved the radical mercy and grace of God, and yet we have been adopted into the kingdom of God by His undeserved and perfect mercy. Our call then, our call as we remain in this this time, this age of tension, seeking to apply the words of Jesus where and when we can. This time where we see heaven in front of us while we remain in the midst of all that is crying out for fulfillment. All that's begging for the return of Jesus Christ so that he may make all things new. Our call is to be open to showing forth the radical mercy of God. We cannot universally apply these words of Jesus to every single situation, not in a way that makes us hate the institutions of justice, not, that makes us, not in a way that makes us hate God's common grace, 
but in a way of wisdom that understands that the only reason any of us can stand before God is because he placed the demands of justice on his son so that the demands of justice might pass over us. Justice passed over us and was placed on the Son of God. The church, the people of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, all of these are reminders that justice does not come to us because it has been laid upon Jesus. Justice does not come to us because it has been laid upon Jesus. May we be a people who live between the tension and the goodness of seeing temporary justice while wanting all, everyone who does not deserve it, to hear about the Savior who saves us from our just punishment and through whom, by faith, we enjoy the blessedness of God and we enjoy his kingdom for all eternity. Imitate his mercy. Live like Jesus. Be grateful, for he saved us even when we were ungrateful. Love your enemies, for he saved us while we were his enemies. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice for your son is enthroned. He is king of all. He is Lord of all. We trust you, for you have shown yourself faithful time and time again. You've shown yourself faithful in Jesus Christ. As we seek wisdom to apply this lesson from Jesus, Father, we pray that you would humble us, soften our hearts, help us to see the ways in which you bring different situations into our lives that we might show forth the radical love and grace and mercy that has been shown to us in Christ. And may we imitate your mercy, for you have shown us that which we did not deserve, that which we never could have earned. So may we rest in that and go forth living and walking by faith, trusting in your spirit, knowing that your word will light the path in front of us. May we follow you always, even to the end of our days, even until we see Jesus face to face. It's in his name we pray. Amen.